Good morning. Wow, this is a better view than down there. It's wonderful to see you all. Thank you, Jen, for the really kind introduction. I'm not really sure with all the kind words she said who exactly she was talking about, but I was told to come up, so here I am. But it's great to see so many friends here, uh, old friends, new friends. And uh, it's been funny, she mentioned that I come from Bridgepoint Bible Church in Houston, Texas. I bring you greetings from those saints there who will be uh, awaking themselves in a short time and making their way to our own place of worship and worshiping through the same word, through the same kinds of songs, with the same truths, the same spirit within them, and gathering for being equipped for the same mission. And I'm really thankful to know that we're in a place uh, with a shared heart and with one spirit and one word. I found as I've gone around Dubai that when I tell people that I'm from Texas, everybody has a response. They talk to me like I have a cowboy hat on or something. They come up with accents and all sorts of things. So it sounds like the great country of Texas is well known in Dubai. And one in the congregation says amen. The last time I was with Redeemer was in 2019 and you were worshiping in a different location. And when you look back at 2019, uh, that was BC, by the way, before COVID. (laughs) Just think back on your life for a minute. How many things have happened in your life since 2019? Just four short years ago. Just four years ago, life was so different. And within the course of these four years, there's so many things, I'm sure, that have unfolded in each of your lives that we wouldn't have even time to share about here. And because I'm a guest here, I know that I don't know most of your names. I don't know most of your stories. I don't know what the last four years of your life have looked like. But there is one thing that I do know, and that's this. Uh, You have been through dark times before. And some of you are in dark times now. And all of us will go through dark times in the future. And so as we look to Psalm 3, we get to walk with David through one of the darkest times in his life as he prays these words that you just heard Jen read. And I'd like to share with you this morning from Psalm 3 six realities about the dark times that David faced and how God met him in those dark times. If you notice in Psalm 3, the title says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And if that doesn't sound good, it's because it's not. It's an ugly story. We know in David's early years, his kingdom prospered, but over time, David grew apathetic, and he stopped leading. He didn't guard his heart. He ended up sexually abusing Bathsheba, murdering her husband Uriah to cover it up. And as a consequence, God told David that his own house, his own family, was going to rise against him. And eventually his son Absalom revolted and took David's throne and tried to kill him. And David and his supporters had to flee Jerusalem, the capital city, and make their way across the Jordan River in a frantic overnight escape. And it's that escape that inspired Psalm 3. And you'll see the full story if you want to read it in 2 Samuel 15 through 19. Now with that background in mind, just imagine what David is experiencing and going through as he prays these words. There's family pain, 
There's fatherly guilt as his own son turns against him. There's widespread betrayal. There's political shock. Public humiliation. He's fearing for his life and family. And this is a no-win situation if there ever was one because the only way for David to regain his throne is to defeat his own son. That's where he's at. And David also knows this whole crisis is part of God's discipline for his sin with Bathsheba because God said his, his own family would rise against him. David is, first of all, overwhelmed by trouble. He is overwhelmed by trouble. That's the first reality we see. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You notice three times David uses this word many. Many, many, many. It means increasing or multiplying. He sounds like a sailor who's sinking in a storm. And wave after wave is just exploding over the side of his boat. He sounds like somebody that just woke up in a room full of snakes. Many are my foes. 2 Samuel 15 verse 12 says, The conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Have you ever been overwhelmed? Have you ever felt like David sounds in these verses? Just wave after wave. You just can't catch a break. What do you do when you're overwhelmed? What do you do when you're overwhelmed? We all have different instinctive responses, don't we? So, some people worry. Some people plan. Some people fight. Some people drink. Some people sleep. Some people rage. What do you do when you're overwhelmed. David here goes to God. He says, I'm overwhelmed. I'm drowning. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? And to make it worse, many of these people assume that God is against David. There's no way that God's going to save David judging on what David has done and the fact that Absalom seems to be successful. That's why David says, Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. If you go back to 2 Samuel, you'll meet this real pleasant gentleman named Shimei. So I use sarcasm, just be aware. Shimei. Shimei follows David's caravan as it's leaving the capital. Shimei was related to the late King Saul, David's predecessor. And Shimei is screaming and throwing rocks at David and his caravan, and he's yelling, You took Saul's throne, now Absalom's taking your throne. What goes around comes around. As David leaves. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God, he's getting what he deserved. Shimei is not just saying, God's not going to help you. Shimei is saying, God's against you. He's against you. People are talking about David's soul. They're saying he's morally disqualified. They're saying God's promises have failed David. And here's the question. What if they're right? Because that is the burning question when we are going through our own dark times. 
What if the darkest thoughts we have are actually the true thoughts? What if God's abandoned us? What if it's never going to get better? What if there is no hope? One author calls this the real trouble beneath the trouble. The real trouble is when you begin to lose all hope. David wondered about it himself. Here's 2 Samuel 15, 25 and 26. Then the king said, If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, let him do to me as it seems good to him. The truth was complicated in David's situation because he was experiencing God's discipline for his sin. And sometimes our dark times are because of previous sinful habits we've had that are reaping their ugly fruit. But in another sense, David was innocent. Absalom was committing evil against him. And that kind of complex situation can really wreak havoc on a human soul, can't it? Where you wonder, is this my fault? Am I supposed to be learning something specific from this, repenting in some way? Or am I an innocent victim of other people's wrongdoing. David is on the brink of losing hope as these enemies increase. The worst thing you can lose, I have found, is not your job. The worst thing that you can lose is not your money. The worst thing you can lose is not even your health. Here's the worst thing you can lose. It's your hope. You can lose everything else, and if you have your hope, you can continue on. If you look at your problems for too long, they inflate. They expand. They get huge. One author says, everything gets harder when you start going on and on about how hard it is. But Peter Craigie says this, if you gaze too long upon the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in your mind's eye to gigantic proportions. But the hypnotic power of the enemy is broken when you turn your gaze toward God. And that is what David does. When you shift your eyes from your problems to God, things start to change. You shift your eyes and your faith begins to follow. So David first is overwhelmed by trouble, but second... He's surrounded by God. He's surrounded by God. That's the second reality in this dark night, verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. C.S. Lewis said, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to wrap a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? A professor named John Hanna told the story of a camping trip that he went on with his daughter and her friends, and he said, one day my my teenage daughter and her friends decided to go rappelling. And he says, rappelling is, is where you just jump off a cliff backwards. 
And he's standing there, he says, and tied to this rope. He says, I'm standing at the edge of this cliff. I'm looking into the baby face of a 16-year-old in front of me who's helping me, holding my rope. And I ask that 16-year-old, will the rope hold? And he looks back at me and says, sir, you'll never know until you step off the edge. David's enemies are multiplying, they're hostile, they're poised to attack, but then he says, do you notice, but you, O Lord, he shifts his eyes to the one who upholds him. He says, you are the shield about me. Did you know ancient leaders were often called shields because they were viewed as the protectors of their people? But David, who is the king and would be seen as Israel's shield, says, I have a shield. I need a shield, and God is my shield. And do you notice what kind of shield it is? A shield typically goes in front, but David says God is a shield about me or around me. He describes a 360-degree shield protecting him on every side. That is his vision of the Lord his God. I've learned these two things as a human being and as a Christian. As a human being, I am, I am far more vulnerable than I used to think. And as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm far more protected than I used to think. And that is what God teaches us when we go through dark times. And he meets us and he proves himself to be our shield. Do you remember that beautiful story in 2 Kings 6, 15 and 17? When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So he asked Elisha, Oh, my master, what are we to do? Elisha said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. What do you mean, those who are with us? It's you and me. There is no group who is with us. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We so often stare at the trouble surrounding us, and we forget the God who surrounds us. David sees God surrounding him as this shield. And you will be intimidated by the size of your problems, or you'll be inspired by the size of your God. But one of those two things is going to happen. Fear is going to drive out faith, or faith is going to drive out fear. In the old Western movies that some people in the United States enjoy, you'll have two individuals come into a town, an old Western town, and they'll meet each other. And someone will say, this town isn't big enough for the both of us. One of us is going to have to go. That's what fear says to faith, and that's what faith says to fear. This heart is not big enough for both of us. And here, David's faith is beginning to push out his fear, as he sees God rescue him. And God rescued David so that David would know 
that God is his glory. Do you see in verse 3? He's a shield about me, my glory. The word glory means heavy. So often we only see and feel that our trials are heavy, but in fact the heaviest thing in a believer's life is the glory of the God who is beneath him on whom we stand as our rock. That's the heaviest thing. God is his glory. God's the best thing in David's life. And I found one of the best things about losing my own glory and watching my strength be diminished is that I find out that God was actually my glory and my strength all along. And with God's strength, what he did, David says at the end of verse 3, is he lifted David's head. He lifted David's head. When David and his caravan were fleeing Jerusalem, listen to this scene. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He's scared to death. All the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. While David was coming to the summit, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Everybody's head is covered, drooping, dirty. The mood could not be worse here. But as David looks back on how God rescued him, he says, God is the one who does what? Lifts up my head. God can take us from despair to hope. And this is what you see in the psalm. My wife and I planted some new plants a little while ago. And they would, when they first went in the ground, would kind of droop and hang their heads. But then they would receive some sun and some rain. And they would amazingly perk up. And they would lift their heads. David has received the deliverance of the Lord and the strength of the Lord. And his head starts to pick up. Why does God respond to David in this way? How does it come about? It's because David had prayed and God faithfully answered him. And so the third reality we see after David is overwhelmed by trouble and then realizes he's surrounded by God is that David was heard in heaven. In his darkest night, David's voice was actually heard in heaven. He says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And that crying aloud is not just a ritualistic prayer. It's not in a calm voice. This is a loud cry to God. And he says his voice reached where? You answered me from your holy hill. Where is God's holy hill in the Old Testament? His holy hill is in Jerusalem. Where is Absalom at right now? Absalom has taken the capital city from David. David has had to flee the city and is gone. And yet, what does David say? God is still in charge of his city. And therefore, God still is in control. And therefore, God is hearing my prayer. David had to flee the city, but God didn't. And always remember this in your darkest times. 
God doesn't run. God doesn't flee. Like God doesn't try to get away from the hard things that we feel we need to get away from. God is still in charge and he answered David. David's not just talking about a generic prayer. He's actually talking about a very specific prayer. David had this old friend that you might remember from 2 Samuel. His name was Ahithophel. Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was this mighty military leader and a brilliant strategist. An old friend. And he was David's top advisor. Everybody listened to Ahithophel. Ahithophel was also the grandfather of Bathsheba. And Ahithophel has turned on David and has joined Absalom. 2 Samuel 15, verse 31. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now David knew Ahithophel would have a good strategy for finishing David off. And David also knew that Absalom... And all of David's, all of Absalom's military commanders would listen to Ahithophel. There was no way Absalom would ignore Ahithophel because he was a living legend. Listen to 2 Samuel 16.23. Now the advice Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. This is a man whose strategies win wars, and he's against David. So how did David respond? Well, he did what any good leader does. He found a man named Hushai the Archite, and he commissioned him to infiltrate Absalom's team and give contradictory advice to what Ahithophel was saying. Advise Absalom differently and see if you can turn him away from Ahithophel's strategy. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 34, he tells Hushai, Defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. But I just skipped a really important part of the story. Because that's not the first thing David did. When David first heard that Ahithophel had joined Absalom, David did not plan, David prayed. It was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He turns to God first. Action was his second response. Prayer was his first response. And this is a lesson for us in dark times. Yes, do what you can do, do what you should do, but depend Depend on what God can do. This is the lesson from Psalm 3. In God's work, prayer is always the story beneath the story. It is the story of our dependence and God's strength beneath the things we're observing. First David prayed, and then he saw Hushai and asked for his help. And what happened? Well, Ahithophel gave 
strategic advice to Absalom. He said, let me attack David tonight while he's exhausted and disoriented. And the entire room in 2 Samuel agrees with Ahithophel. But then, strangely, Absalom asks for Hushai's advice. And Hushai says, no, let's wait. Let's gather a massive force from around the entire nation, and then we'll go after him. And the entire room flips and takes Hushai's advice against Ahithophel. Ahithophel clearly had the winning strategy. He says, take the initiative. Get to David before he can regroup. If you read basic military strategy, Ahithophel's strategy was correct. But God was against Ahithophel, and so his strategy was denied. And he went home, and like Judas Iscariot, who betrayed David's greatest son, Ahithophel went home, and he hanged himself. Because 2 Samuel 17, 14 says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Absalom was ahead of David, and Ahithophel was ahead of David, but nobody is ahead of God. Nobody gets ahead of God. Because God is not slow. And also because God is not fast. God simply is. God is eternal. He's unchanging. He knows everything. He is everywhere. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's why one of my favorite songs says, From age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end. And this is who was protecting David in his darkest times. And for all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the one who's also watching over you in your darkest times. So through this whole ordeal, God had taught David that when believers are overwhelmed by trouble, we are still surrounded by God. And as we cry out to him in faith, our voices are heard in heaven by the sovereign king, who is never surprised. When you're surprised and when I'm surprised, God is not also surprised. And that's good news. And it means, fourth, it means that we can be at rest on earth. If you know you're heard in heaven, then you can be at rest on earth. And this is what David says in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. So here's how the story played out. God did answer David's prayer by making Absalom not listen to Ahithophel. But David didn't know his prayer had been answered until the next morning. Because Ahithophel's advice was rejected in Jerusalem. And David is still in the caravan that's fleeing the city. God often tests our faith by doing his work in the night, but not showing us till the morning. 
And the weight is the weight of faith. And it's a weight that strengthens our faith. That night, David was told by his informants that Ahithophel wanted to attack, which he did. So David's exhausted caravan had to keep fleeing and had to get across the Jordan River. Here's 2 Samuel 17. They told him, get up and immediately ford the river, for Ahithophel has given this advice against you. So David and all the people with him got up and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, there was no one who had not crossed the Jordan. David is on the precipice here. He's on the very edge of his life. And Absalom has the numbers. Absalom has the element of surprise. Absalom has the high ground. Absalom has a bigger following. Absalom has the winning strategy if he just listens to the famous Ahithophel. One night raid, and the whole thing is over for David and his followers. And that dramatic overnight river crossing is the story behind what David says in verse 5. At some point, David, who's exhausted, sleeps. And only when he woke up did he see that everyone was still alive. And God had answered his prayer. He says he was sustained by God. He was sustained by God. That word sustained means to prop up or to support, meaning David sees that he was falling, he was collapsing, but God held him up. God held him up through the night. And here's what I know. There are so many people in here. Your night might last a night. Your night might last a week. Your night might last a month. Your night might last a year. Your night might last 10 years. And you and I and all of your friends can wish it didn't, but it will. And I don't know most of you, but I can see the faces of the brothers and sisters in our church back at home and your faces. And I know the nights they're walking in. And I know the scars on their souls. And I know the heartaches in their families. And I know some of the pains they've walked through, some of the pains they're walking through, and some of the pains that they will walk through. I don't know how long your night's going to be, but I do know this, Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. For all God's people, there is a morning of deliverance coming. It may be in this life. It's guaranteed to be at the day we're raised from the dead with the Christ whose resurrection we sang about just before I got up. But it is coming. David sleeps. He wakes again because the Lord sustained him. And that creates a faith and a rest that makes him say in Psalm 4, verse 8, the very next psalm, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You know, going to sleep is one of the most humbling things that we as human beings do. Some of you are incredibly successful. All of you have some level of energy and life that you bring throughout the day. And then do you know what happens for like six to eight, six to eight hours every night? You collapse and you're completely useless. And I am too. 
And it is a regular rhythmic thing we do that makes us remember we are not in charge of the universe. We're not even in charge of our own little lives. Because we're helpless for about a third to a fourth of our lives. Night after night, we all lay down and sleep. We are unconscious and we're vulnerable in the middle of a dark world. And yet morning by morning, we wake again because the Lord sustains us. And that is because there is one who's standing watch over us even in our darkest times. And Psalm 121 verses 3 and 4 says this about him. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Did you know God never goes to sleep? He's always watching, always caring, always faithful. <laughs> so if for those six to eight hours every night, you and I are both completely dependent on a God who protects and sustains us, if we contribute nothing to our own protection, why is it that I wake up and for the next 16 to 18 hours, I assume everything now depends on me? Well, what was going on for those six to eight hours before? How did, all, how did it all of a sudden depend on me? Sleep is our daily lesson in humility, if we'll take it. And David's overnight experience here strengthens his faith, and he is at rest on earth. And because of his experience, in verse 6, we see the fifth reality as David walks through this dark night. David is afraid no more. He's afraid no more. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. What did he say before? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul there's no salvation for him and God. What does he say now? I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. What I feared before, I fear no more. That is the story of darkness and sunrise as God sustains us and shows himself faithful. Biblical fear is a good and right thing. We know that scripture tells us to fear the Lord. Scripture tells us to respect our governing leaders. Scripture tells us to have a healthy sense of fear and respect. But we all know, right, that many of our fears are misplaced. Many of our fears are unhealthy. We fear things that we shouldn't fear, and our fears control us. An unhealthy fear is like a, it's like a spiritual termite. I had to Google if termites were in Dubai, and from what I saw last night, I think they are. Termites will get into the wood structure of your home, and they will just begin to eat away at it. They multiply they eat away the structure of your home, and they make it unstable. But they do all of that without you seeing them. Fear is like a spiritual termite. It eats away the strength and the structure of our souls, and it makes us unstable. It saps our strength before we can even notice what's happening. 
Unhealthy fear can grow into a spiritual infestation. But what is David saying here in this psalm? God's faithful love is a pesticide against fear. It poisons that ungodly fear. And it replaces it with a growing faith. David found himself overwhelmed in verses 1 and 2. But he sought the Lord and God helped him. And so now, after that experience, he resolves... I will not be afraid. I love this story from a pastor named Josh Howerton in the U.S. He said, An older Christian in my life had more peace than me about a hard situation. And I said, Well, you have more faith than me. But he responded, No, I have more experience with a faithful God. David was growing in these experiences with his faithful God, which later in the Psalms can lead him to say what? In Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. David is afraid no more. And here's the sixth reality that we see in this Psalm in verses 7 and 8. David is led in battle. He's led in battle. Life is a struggle. His trial was a struggle. But he has a leader in this battle, and so do you if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is his final prayer. When he says God strikes all his enemies on the cheek, that pictures his enemies like vicious animals that have him in their grasp. And if God breaks the teeth of this violent animal, what does that animal have to do? Let go. You get released. You break the teeth of the wicked. At this point in Psalm 3, do you notice David's dark night is not over yet. God did carry him through that one night when Absalom didn't attack and he was safe. But do you notice that the night's still dark? He's still praying for God's help. Absalom is still in control. And David knew that he needed to retake the place where he was meant to be king and called by God to be king, which was going to take a battle. And so he prays in verse 7, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Now what does he mean when he says that? Well, did you know the Israelites used to say this same thing earlier in their history? They would pray the same prayer. This is Numbers 10, verse 35. As the Israelites made their way through that long, hot, painful, slow wilderness. This is what they would pray as God led them. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So when David says, Arise, O Lord, he's talking like a man who sees God enthroned on the ark, going before him into battle. And do you know why that prayer is so strange in Psalm 3? It's really out of place. Do you know why? Because David doesn't have the ark with him. The ark got left back in Jerusalem. Absalom is the one 
who is now living right near the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. When David was leaving the city, the priests actually brought the Ark out. They set it by the side of the road as the caravan of refugees left the city because they were saying, we want to make sure that we have God with us. And do you know what David told them? He said, take the ark back to the tabernacle in Jerusalem where it belongs. Because if the ark is with us, but God is not, it doesn't matter. And if God is with us, even though the ark is not, we're safe. David does not fall into the trap of trusting in religious symbolism and religious rituals. David knows that if God is with him, he doesn't need even that symbol God had commanded to be made on Mount Sinai hundreds of, year, hundreds of years before. In this story, David has had some very precious things taken away from him, hasn't he? And in the midst of that, you see this profound faith that develops in him as he cries out to God, as he sees God answer him, and he realizes God is faithful. And I want to tell you that God has taught me that when I go through dark times, dark times like I would never want to go through, those times are truly the most important times in my life. Because God shows me that his light is sufficient in my darkness, that his strength is sufficient in my weakness, that his glory shines so much greater than my shame, and that God is truly good all the time. This is what David learns in Psalm 3. Now as we close, this psalm is by David. But this psalm is about more than David. Because when David's greatest son came, the one that God promised David he would send from his family line, the one who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, we see that all of these psalms, all of these prayers were pointing forward to his own life. This is Luke 24. Jesus said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. And the Old Testament is filled with promises about the coming Messiah. It's filled with patterns that point forward to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, don't we find Jesus overwhelmed by trouble as he hangs there on the cross? Many, many, many were rising against him. The scholars are scheming. And the Pharisees are plotting, and the mob is chanting what? Crucify, crucify, crucify. This is Jesus' experience too. And then he hangs there, as he hangs there on the cross, what do they say about him? There's no salvation for him in God. This is a common criminal. Matthew 27, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if God desires him. He said, I am the Son of God. Jesus going through the same things that David did, but far worse. But Jesus, too, cried out to God, his father, as David did at the end of his time on the cross. What does he say in Luke 23? Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, 
into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm going to trust you through the darkest night any human being has ever endured when the Son of God, fully God and fully man, died on the cross to provide the full payment for the sins of all who would trust him. He releases his own life into the hands of his Father and trusts him. And he lays down and he sleeps the sleep of death. And then what happens? He woke again because the Lord sustained him. And God raised him from the dead. And I want you to understand this. The one who went into that grave as a crucified lamb came out as a resurrected lion. And if that lion goes before us, if that lion is the one who protects us, then every believer is far safer than we ever imagine, aren't we? This is what Jesus says in Revelation 1, 17 to 18. In all of his glory, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys to the universe. This is the one we serve, and this is the one who holds us in our hands, in his hands. And that is why we say with David at the end of this psalm, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me pray that you too would find God to be faithful through your own night. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness during the day and during the night. Lord, I thank you that you are proving yourself faithful to each person here who trusts in you. I thank you, Lord, that you do send us through dark times, that you teach us, that you train us, that you stretch us, and that you grow our faith. Father, I do pray for all those here whose stories I don't know, but who are going through times that I probably couldn't even imagine. I pray that you would hold them up. I pray that you would hear their voice and their prayers. If there's sin that you want to expose and cause them to confess and repent from, I pray that you would make your discipline clear so that they could respond to you appropriately. If there's false accusations that they hear in their minds or being said about them, I pray that you would not allow those to take root in their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would turn their eyes from their own fears to you and that as their eyes shift to you, their faith would follow. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as believers to consistently encourage and care for one another so that we can strengthen each other's faith to be faithful through the night. And we thank you, Lord, that us making it through the night does not depend on our faithfulness. It depends on your faithfulness. And so we turn to worship you now again. In Jesus' name, amen.